This chapter, as you may recall, began with reference to the previous chapter and Arjun's despair, Vishada. And Sri Bhagavan, Lord Krishna, responded to Arjun by informing him that the matters that he was concerned with were not worthy of the attention that he was giving them and and certainly they shouldn't be a cause of despondence for him. He gave various reasons as to why, citing the heritage of Arjun, his being a warrior and an Aryan and so forth. And while Arjun made a brief rebuttal, he, he caved in and acknowledged that Krishna's dismissal of his rationalization, really, that uh, his resistance in the previous chapter amounted to. Well, Arjuna uh, caved in and admitted that, that Krishna was correct. He stumbled along a little bit more with some justification, but ultimately did cave in and placed himself at Krishna's disposal, asked him to, to be his guru and to guide him. And so quickly Krishna began to guide by way of bringing the discussion to the level of the soul and for a number of verses, Krishna spoke about the nature of the soul from many different angles of vision. And then, as we heard in the last darshan here, Krishna took the argument from the level of discussing <coughs> the nature of the soul to discussing within the realm of karma and, in effect, answered Arjuna's reservations for fighting on the basis of dharma. With He answered on the basis of dharma and more or less said, well, told him that while you reason that it will be irreligious to fight, my reasoning is it will be irreligious for you not to fight. And he ended that discussion on the note of yoga, indirectly, by encouraging Arjuna to fight without concern for gain or loss, happiness or distress, with equanimity of mind. And we pointed out in the last discussion, that that equanimity of mind that he referred to becomes clear in the section under discussion tonight is what yoga is about in many respects. So, as I say, he ended his discussion on dharma with emphasis on yoga, which is where he wants Arjuna to go, to yoga. So here... Text 39 begins another section of the second chapter. And this section, I doubt we'll be able to discuss in its entirety tonight. It goes from text 39 up to text 53. In text 54, Arjuna asks another question, which 
leads to the final section of this second chapter. So we're really in, in the heart of the material here, in the second chapter, which, as I've commented and as Prabhupada commented in his edition, is a cryptic summary of the entire text. So how is that so? You may wonder. It's a cryptic summary of the entire text in the sense that it takes us through, in brief and in a cryptic way, the different types of yoga that are the main emphasis of the entire text of the Bhagavad Gita. It takes us from actually from Dharma, religious activity, which is not necessarily yogic. In other words, we can be religious and not spiritual. When we speak of yoga, we're talking about something spiritual, spiritual discipline. Religious discipline is not necessarily spiritual, but hopefully it leads to spiritual discipline and insight. So, from Dharma, or religious engagement, which is appropriate for human society, that is to say, to color all of our human activities with a religious brush, in other words, to see everything that we do in our human life somehow in relation to God or with some acknowledgement of God, a godly or controlling factor in life, to act accordingly, to see that is to say that we're not independent in what we do, to look at the world that is to say and, and see there are consequences. As we should see when we look out, there are consequences. There are persons in different conditions of life, and for what we do there are consequences. So this is a kind of a, the idea to come in the religious direction. So from re- discussion of religion in the beginning to a discussion of the nature of the soul, to come down from the soul and again discuss religion for the purpose of stressing that one should engage oneself in accordance with the level of one's eligibility. That there's one goal in life, but there may be different disciplines that are designed for different persons who have different levels of eligibility or insight into the matter. Everyone is not capable to enter the, the stream in the same place. This is the general idea, which is an emphasis in, throughout Bhagavad Gita. So Krishna comes down from talking about the soul to talk about Dharma, and now he's going to talk about yoga, and he's going to talk about karma yoga, and he's going to talk about jnana yoga, and in the context of talking about karma yoga and jnana yoga, he's going to talk about bhakti yoga, which is his ultimate advocacy. And so it takes us through all these different disciplines in brief. So how it is that he does this, of course, is wonderfully brought out by the Gaudiya Acharyas. So we'll read text 39 where we begin tonight and see how a section of the Bhagavad Gita that does not overtly appear to be about bhakti is indeed about bhakti and how, therefore, in a cryptic sense, in a covert sense, Krishna is speaking about this while overtly stressing karma yoga, which he instructs Arjun is what he is eligible for at this time. Arjuna, of course, is taking the part of a student. So through Arjuna, Krishna wants to instruct us. And we should be clear in all of this that we have eligibility for bhakti. Why is that? Why is it that we have eligibility for bhakti? Sraddha. 
Sraddha means faith in a general sense, but it means faith in the efficacy of bhakti, a sense, not just a belief, but a sense, an insight, that simply by conforming to the bhakti shastra, that which governs bhakti, bhakti is love, ultimately, and love is, of course, hard to constrain, to regulate, but there is a stage in the development of love where some organization, regulation may be useful, just like for a young man to fall in love with a young lady, it's not difficult, (laughs) but still she might stand before the mirror and put on makeup and make different arrangements and so forth to try to ensure that it will happen, it's natural. Some young man will fall in love with some young girl. But still, there may be things that she can do that can ensure that that may happen more quickly or rapidly. So we have a stage in bhakti where we have different rules and regulations to follow. And these are meant to help us to ensure that we can fall in love with God. In other words, there's a way in which we could arrange our lives that we might catch his attention. So we have certain guidelines and so forth, and they seem, in some respects, to fall short of love, but we might think of them in terms of the analogy I have given. There are things that you can do that can help it along, and one who wants that will embrace those things. And one who has the sense that this bhakti, devotion to Krishna, by this alone, my life will become complete, that person has Sraddha. He or she thinks there's nothing else that I have to do to make my life complete, perfect. Now, I may be doing other things, <laughs> but I have this sense that if I didn't and I just engaged in Krishna Bhakti, my life would be perfect. That we call Sraddha in a budding stage, so to speak. So who has that has eligibility for Bhakti. So we are gathered for the most part on the basis of that. So we have eligibility. So while we speak about progression through different paths and eligibility for different persons at different levels and so forth, we shouldn't misconstrue that we only have eligibility for, for example, karma yoga. And from that I'll have to develop in terms of mystic insight and to come to jnana yoga and so forth. In the end I'll take up bhakti. This is a particular course that some people may have to go through. But we are fortunate that what? What has made us fortunate by which we have gained eligibility for bhakti? Sadhu Sangha is a shortcut. Bhakti is, is actually very natural. You can say it's very easy, but it's very high also. Real bhakti. Very, very high. And to engage in the Mature practice of bhakti requires so much background, so much development. Whatever is in karma yoga, whatever is the result of jnana yoga, so forth, that is all realized already by one who has, is engaged in mature bhakti, shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti. So it's very, very high. And so the general course may be that through a gradual progression one qualifies oneself for that. But there's another thing to bhakti, 
besides the fact that she's very high, is that she's very generous. And her generosity is manifest through those in whose hearts she has taken shelter, and thus, by the force of the influence of that bhakti, her magnanimity, her generosity, her exalted nature, and those persons are moving in and amongst us and speaking about bhakti and distributing bhakti, sadhus. So if we get their sangha, their association, then it's a shortcut. Because faith is largely the product of association. So if we associate with faithful persons who have experience, it means experience in the clearing of doubts, which enables one to move freely and happily without reservation, like you would at home. At home, you move freely. When you're in a foreign country, then you're a little cautious. At home, then, you come home and mother puts something on the table, you don't ask what's in it. She says, eat. You eat. So the homeland of the soul is free from doubt. It's a tangible manifestation of faith, experience. We may have a sense that by engaging in bhakti, my life will be complete. And as we do so, we get experience of that. So if we meet such persons, their faith will be shared with us naturally, without trying, because a person is his faith. Shraddhomayo yam purusha. A person is his faith. To have divine faith, then that will exude from that person whether he wants to speak and articulate and explain his faith, his experience, and so forth, or not. So keeping that company, getting that company is most valuable. It is mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita, sadhu sangha, sadhu sangha, sarva shastra, koi lava matra, sadhu sangha, sarva siddhi hai. If you get a little bit of association, fraction of a second of association with a real sadhu, that can change the course of your whole life. As a result of that, we have some eligibility for bhakti, but we are just beginners in bhakti. But we are very fortunate that we have such eligibility, so we may engage directly in bhakti, which means shravanam, kirtanam, vishnu smaranam, parasevanam, arjunam, bandhanam, dasyam, sakyam, atmani, vedanam. These are nine limbs of bhakti. Principal ones are what? Hearing and chanting hearing and chanting about Krishna. This is bhakti. Remembering Krishna. Archanam, serving the murti of Krishna, the deity of Krishna. Vandanam, offering prayers to Krishna. Reciting the powerful prayers of great devotees found in the scriptures. Dasyam, like Hanuman, rendering personal service to the Lord or to the Lord's devotees. Padasevanam, it literally means serving the lotus feet. What it involves is things like walking to the temple, bathing in the holy rivers, going to the dham, like Vrindavan dham, Navadvip dham, and walking around there in Parikram. This is all called Padasevanam. And Sakyam uh, Atmanivedanam thinking of the Lord as one friend and surrendering everything. This is called Navalakshan Bhakti. These activities are Bhakti. 
If you do these activities, even if your mind is somewhere else, it's bhakti. You may not get the same result <laughs> as if you are there consciously. But overtly, they are bhakti. So we have eligibility for these things. We should try to engage in these things. Now, we have other things, interests, also in our hearts. So we have to try to bring those things in relation to bhakti, somehow or other, so that our life can eventually get consumed simply in hearing and chanting. So we have some eligibility for bhakti. We should take up bhakti, not any other path, but we should see that through our engagement in bhakti, and bhakti means not that we just get the association of a sadhu, get bhakti, and he leaves our life. Do we keep that company? We should have one healthy concern, that a person of consequence is concerned about what I'm doing. A person of spiritual consequence means a sadhu, means a Vaishnava. That a Vaishnava, who has real connection with Krishna, is interested in what I'm doing. If what I'm doing has some connection with such a person. That should be our only anxiety a healthy anxiety. So we should engage in bhakti under such guidance. When Bhakti Sarasati Thakur was conducting his preaching mission in India, and he would travel, sometimes getting off the train in a smaller area, then the group would be greeted by local people and they would want to take him to meet the sadhu in their village, the Baba. So, there were so many local babas, and Sarasati Thakur, as a standard, he would ask, under which Vaishnav is he serving? And they would say, oh, no, no, neither. He's not, no, 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 serving. He's, we are serving him. He, isn't. he would dismiss that person. This is an interesting point, because we often hear, we have heard, Bhaktivinoda Thakur has stated it himself, that the standard of a Vaishnav is how much he can convert others to Vaishnavism the extent to which he can convert others to Vaishnavism, this will be a means of determining his own standing in Vaishnavism. Now, he said it, so there's certainly some truth to that. But we have to think a little bit about that. What is conversion? Sarvabhombhattacharya, he was converted. And Mahaprabhu tested the measure of his conversion more than once and was very satisfied to see the result. Many people may be touched, but the measure of their conversion has to be sometimes tested. So the number may be smaller than it looks on the outside. That is one point. The second point is this, that that is the lowest standard for measuring the standing of a Vaishnava. More important will be how that Vaishnava, not how he relates to the lower section, after all, our very material conditioning compels us largely to keep the company of people who are lesser than ourselves, lower than ourselves. We may find ourselves feeling more comfortable in the company of those who we can control, whom we can appear bigger than we may be, <laughs> too, in their eyes. And we may live then off of that uh, bhav, Purusha bhav, we call it. <laughs> the enjoyer bhav, the controller bhav. So this is an unfortunate condition. But we shouldn't think 
that, as Sridhar Maharaj often commented, that will that call much progress for us to keep the company of only of those who are in a lesser status than ourselves? Certainly not if we think of them as such. Possible we could keep the company of such people but not think of them as such and learn much, but that's not how we conduct ourselves for the most part. So to keep the company of the lower sector, how we relate to the lower section is one thing, but how we relate to the higher sector, that is another thing. And that's another measure, standard of measuring the status of a Vaishnav. Not how he relates to the lower section, but how he relates to the higher section. Prabhupada wrote to Sridhar Maharaj early on in his mission in the East Coast when he was had fallen ill, he wrote to Sridhar Maharaj asking him, what is your advice? I'm here in America preaching. I'm having success for Guru Maharaj, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur Prabhupada. But my heart is not in good condition. I've already been hospitalized and I may die at any time. Shall I return to Vrindavan to pass from the world there or shall I stay here? I need your counsel, he said. This is my greatest shortcoming. I have no one I can discuss these things with. He was surrounded by us. Very unfortunate condition to be in. He, in this way, sought some counsel from his elder and revered godbrother, Goswami Maharaj. Now, of course, just as a side note, Sridhar Maharaj was the Siksha Guru of Prabhupada. Prabhupada considered him as such. But that's a big word. And so Sridhar Maharaj is also my Siksha Guru. But how I will relate to him as a Siksha Guru is a little different from how Prabhupada will relate to him as a Siksha Guru. Prabhupada may take some Siksha and Prabhupada may reject some also. It's possible. <laughs> I cannot do that. So that's why, just commenting in general, sometimes you might find that some of my godbrothers kind of recoil a little bit if you mentioned that Sridharmarsh was the Siksha Guru of Prabhupada. Because we don't see that Prabhupada related to Sridharmarsh like I, for example, relate to Sridharmarsh. So the Siksha Guru is a big word and it can be applied in different extents. I can say, oh, yes, he's my Siksha Guru, a senior person. Yes, I have taken some Siksha from him. He's my Siksha Guru. I can, I may say, my, my God really, yes, he's like my Siksha Guru. But I may also see him with some relativity and someone may have a Siksha Guru who is actually a Siksha Guru in every sense of the word. So that relationship will be different. So there's understandable. If you try to push this point, some of Prabhupada's disciples will say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> to what extent? So you should understand the dynamics of these types of spiritual relationships. But Prabhupada, in this instance that I'm citing, demonstrated an important point. He was converting thousands of people. In mass, they were coming to Krishna Bhakti and Mahaprabhu's mission through his influence. In a humble letter, he wrote to his godbrother, Sridhar Marjanabhadvi, for his advice and said, this is the only thing I'm lacking, good counsel. We would think such a person needs advice. He's giving advice to everybody and people are taking it like orders, like as God has spoken. Absolute, yeah, I think, in every respect. I mean, we thought Prabhupada so absolute that one of my godbrothers, 
he told me that he used to think that if you were spiritual and somebody asked you a question and the answer was yes, he went like this. Yes. Instead of like this. In America we go, yes, yes. So he thought that's the material way of doing it. The spiritual way is like this. Because whenever Prophet was asked, he went, yes, yes. <laughs> so he thought when God says yes, he goes like this. See how wrong the world is in the, in the West? They're going like this. They have it backwards. So until I went to India and I said, everybody does that. <laughs> The point is, anyway, such an absolute sense, we took Prabhupada as every words, every breath, as every movement. And there's some value to that, of course. But in time, we should make some progress also. But this person, who influenced so many people, not just ordinary people, ordinary in a sense, and we were not the best company, certainly couldn't give him any counsel, but we were thinking people, nonetheless, in the times of counterculture, and so forth in America, which was very has been very influential the world over. He had our full attention, full attention. And so for us to think that he would need counsel or feel like that, we didn't think like that. We weren't aware that he wrote such a letter and felt like that, but he did. And this is not a sign of his inadequacy or shortcoming, but as I say, this is really the more comprehensive means of measuring the standard of a Vaishnav, how he relates to the senior Vaishnavs. I told the story before that maybe worth repeating in this regard that some of my godbrothers came to see Sridhar Maharaj and some of my other godbrothers were under the shelter of Sridhar Maharaj and the ones that came offered regard to Sridhar Maharaj. Well, Sridhar Maharaj, you are like our Shiksha Guru. We, uh, we respect you in all regards. But we're here to tell you that these other fellows who are here, they're just using you for their political purposes. And Sridhar Maharaj replied, Oh, so you think I'm a fool? And where they're saying, You're so great, you're so high, you're like our Shiksha Guru, but you don't think that I know where these people are at as well as where you are at as they're sitting before me point is that on the one side, when canvassing and bringing in the new people from the lower section, well, then some deception may be possible. It's a great philosophy. It's certainly easier to articulate it and explain it and know the theory than it is to realize it. So that side, well, with a little charisma and a little knowledge, you may get a following. But the other side, the higher side, they'll not be deceived. So we should come under the shelter of a real Vaishnava if we want to engage in bhakti. Therefore, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur used to ask, Oh, you have a Siddha Baba in your village? Under which Vaishnava is he serving? We are in the Bhakti Vinod Puribar, he would say. The line of Bhakti Vinod, the family of Bhakti Vinod. Under his broad conception, we are serving. Bhakti Vinod Thakur used to say what? He said, In Nadia, Navadviptam, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and Panchatattva, Gaur Nityananda Garadhar, Advaita Srivasadi, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda, they are engaged eternally in Sankirtan. How great we think of Bhakti Vinodhaka. He said, In Nadia, in that Sankirtan of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, I am the sweeper, street sweeper. 
I'm holding the broom, sweeping the street. We used to go in Nadia and do kirtan. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur predicted that devotees from all over the world would come one day to Mahapur in Navadweep and perform Sankirtan. We were there to uh, be part of the prophecy of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. People from all different countries coming, chanting Jai Sachinandan, Jai Sachinandan in the streets of Mayapur. And people would come out, ladies, village ladies, and with their hands, they would sweep the streets like this in front of us and make a little offering of sweets to the Sankirtan of the international devotees coming through the street. Bhaktivinoda Thakur, having the vision of Panchatattva, Mahaprabhu's eternal Sankirtan in Navadweep, envisioned himself participating in that, like one of those ladies coming, sweeping the street. And you know how we felt about those ladies? We felt what kind of devotion they have. <laughs> They're sweeping the street where we will walk because they have such regard for Namsan Kirtan. What respect they have for that Namsan Kirtan. And we're coming from Western countries where you'd go on the street and people go, Hey! Hey, Krishna! <laughs> Get a haircut! Yeah. <laughs> this kind of thing. We were in the Dham of Mahaprabhu performing Sankirtan and we could see the eternal residence of the Dham coming forward with such regard for Nam Sankirtan. We did not have the kind of regard for Nam Sankirtan that they had. Bhaktivinoda Thakur said like this, in the Sankirtan of Mahaprabhu, I am a street sweeper, sweeping the street with a broom. Street sweeper is a class of people in India. You know, India is divided very much into different classes. Sweeper ladies are at the bottom of the pile. You can see them going and picking up the cow dung and buffalo dung and whatever else is in the street and piling it in the basket and carrying it off. Bhaktivinoda Thakur saw himself, I'm a street sweeper. And Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur said, and I am one straw in the broom of Bhaktivinoda. If you want to enter the Kirtan of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Kirtaniya Sadahari, never come out. If you want to there and never return, if you want to enter like that, as Krishna advises in Gita, then you have to follow this mandate. More humble than a blade of grass. More tolerant than a tree. Amanino monadena, expecting no honor for yourself, offering all honor to others. And offering all honor to others, expecting no honor, this tolerance, it's all actually inside of humility. Therefore, the first line we emphasize over and over again, Trinada Pisunichina, more humble than a blade of grass. Very tall order to be very small. A very big order to perceive yourself as very small, which is, after all, the reality. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsi Thakur thought of himself like this. I'm one straw in the broom of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And therefore I say, under which Vaishnava are you working? What straw are you? In whose broom? Oh, no, no, he is God. <laughs> then he would dismiss. So, Bhakti means under the guidance of a Vaishnav. It's called Vaishnavism. The Vaishnava is given more importance than God in our tradition. 
God has given more importance to the Vaishnav than to himself. So, we are fortunate to get such good company, to be involved in this, even indirectly, if the company has the power to bring us to this point. But we should see, by our engagement, hearing and chanting and all these things, that what develops within us is all the things that are supposed to develop in these different stages through the practice of karma yoga, sattva comes, and that means knowledge. With the development of knowledge, then one can leave off from karma and cultivate that knowledge through renunciation and meditation and so forth. With the full development of self-knowledge, well, then one is in a good position to enter into real bhakti. After all, the drama of bhakti of Krishna Leela is performed on a stage of consciousness. It's in the, the conscious world. So we should see that we are engaged in bhakti, we are beginners, and we should measure our development in this in terms of all the developments that are mentioned in the Gita. So here, in this verse, Krishna says, Esha te bhita sankhye buddhir yoga tvimam shinu he says, I have spoken to you of how to use wisdom in Sankhya. Now hear about wisdom in yoga. With this wisdom, Arjun, you will free yourself from the bondage resulting from karma. So this starts a new section. It's about bhakti, as I've explained. But the terms used here, the term used here is yoga. What was previously discussed in the previous section was Sankhya. These terms Sankhya and Yoga, it comes up again and again in these first six chapters in particular. Sankhya means, Vishwanath Chakravitakura has given a nice explanation. He says, Sankhya is that which illuminates the nature of an object perfectly. Sankhya. Sankhya, therefore, means analytical study that brings to light the real nature of a thing. And there are two things in this world, consciousness and matter. So it's about differentiating between these two. Krishna spoke about the nature of the soul for a number of verses. That is all Sankhya. After doing that, what did he speak about? Dharma, in the realm of karma, in the realm of matter. So, in a sense, this entire discussion Krishna's beginning speech about the nature of the soul and then his apparent digression back to discuss about dharma in the realm of karma. In the general sense, it's all sankhya. Sometimes we talk about just the first section where he talks about the soul as sankhya, but in a sense the whole thing, because it's a discussion of both consciousness and matter. Ordinary dharma, religious life, as I said, it's not spiritual. The soul isn't waking up. It's not directly waking up the soul or exercising the soul. So he says, I've spoken about Sankhya. Now Sankhya, of course, is, is a philosophy unto itself, one of the six darshans of India. That's not what's referred to here. The founder of the Sankhya system is named Kopila. There's not much of any historical record that we can find about Mr. Kopila, but he, Prabhupada used to call him, what, the atheist Kapila as opposed to the incarnation of the Lord Devahuti Putra. 
In fact, Prabhupada gave a uh, series of lectures on the third canto of the Bhagavatam dealing with Kapila's instructing his mother was published in a book and Prabhupada insisted that the name be Teachings of Lord Kapila, the son of Devahuti. So he wanted to differentiate between this Kapila and the atheist Kapila. But it's worth noting that only from the vantage point of Vaishnavism would the other Kapila really be called an atheist because the theology of Gaudi Vaishnavism being what it is, it's full-fledged theism in the language of Sridhar Maharaj. So in relation, in comparison to full-fledged theism, a number of things could be called atheism. So Kapila Sankhi is one such. Of course, he doesn't acknowledge the existence of God, so that's <laughs> important. But, but at the same time, in India, who's a, a Gnostic, an atheist, is one who doesn't accept the Shastra. Therefore, the Buddhists are called Gnostic because they don't accept the Vedanta, the Veda. But Kapila accepts the Veda. In fact, he explains his whole system with reference to scripture. His Sankhya philosophy is basically the idea that there are Purusha and Prakriti. So there are many souls and there's material nature. The touch of the two makes the world go around. Now, while we differ with him on that, in much as we have accept God and his influence and so on and so forth, there's an important aspect of the Sankhya that we will find readily employed throughout the Bhagavatam and the whole extent of the Vedic literature. And that's this his Parinam Vad, so to speak, his, his idea that the effect is latent inside of the cause. For example, when we hear about the manifestation of the material elements, for example, in Bhagavatam, the whole creation theory, there's an evolution going on. This is called Parinam, evolution of the elements. Inside one is another and another, and, and the effect is inside the, the cause. When the cause happens, the effect comes out. This a whole. So this is employed considerably. So there are many aspects of the Sankhya theory that we do embrace, but the whole theory is different from that of Vedanta. We are Vedantists. And so similarly with yoga, which is also mentioned here, Krishna says, I talked about Sankhya, now I'm going to teach you about yoga. So the founder of the yoga system is Patanjali, and Patanjali, of course, wrote the yoga sutras, not so much concerned with a metaphysical explanation of the world as with practical guidelines on how to adjust your psyche and uh, physiological and psychological makeup such that you can get release from samsara. And it's actually the full teaching of Patanjali's yoga system. We don't embrace as Vedantists his conclusion, but many aspects of what he teaches about yoga, about the mind, nature of the mind, so it is all part of Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavatam, and so on. So here the terms don't refer to those founders, but they refer to really a, an analytical study of material nature such that one can find the soul there in terms of Sankhya and Yoga, then that practice by which the soul can be realized, experienced. Sankhya denotes discrimination and separation and Yoga denotes union. So by negative and by positive means we will make progress by finding out, discerning what we are not, and 
acting in terms of what we are, separating ourselves from that which we are presently connected with, matter, but we are not of that nature, and connecting ourselves with Godhead, who is of the same nature. So from Sankhya to Yoga, and Sankhya is found in Bhagavad Gita and later on in these chapters, in these first six chapters, where it means Jnana Yoga, and Yoga is basically Karma Yoga. But my main point here tonight is that this Karma Yoga, Nishkam Karma Yoga, karma means Yoga means that while acting within the realm of Karma, we do so in such a way that we become purified, the heart becomes purified. And the basic thrust of that is that we work within, technically speaking, this means that there are rules that govern those within the realm of karma. And we abide by all those rules and perform all those duties and so forth, but in such a way that the fruits, the principal fruits of our work is offered to Bhagavan, to God. That brings sattva, that brings knowledge, that purifies the heart, knowledge of the self results from that. And from karma yoga, one can come to jnana. And in jnana yoga, one can do dhyan, meditation, with that renunciation, and, and so forth. So, in these first six chapters, we have this ongoing, and it starts really here, confusion of Arjun. You're talking about inaction, you're talking about action. Which is better? What should I do? The question comes up in the third chapter. The seed of that question is here in the previous verse and in this verse. In the fifth chapter, he asks something similar. So you should sort all this out. You should study this and sort this out. It's been explained at some length for good reason. Basically, what Krishna is advocating here for Arjuna is that he engage in such a way in terms of his eligibility that he'll become purified. Overtly, therefore, He's emphasizing Nishkam Karma Yoga. In other words, he says, you're still in the realm of karma. You should act in terms of the rules that govern the plane of karma. Without attachment to the results, your heart will become purified. And you can move on from there. But we must remember that, of course, Arjuna is a devotee. And ultimately, Krishna's advocacy is a devotion. Arjuna has been put into a mystic uh, illusion here to be taught all these things. So while Krishna is speaking about Nishkam Karma Yoga, he's at the same time really talking about bhakti. What is the word he uses here to advocate yoga? He says what? Buddhiyuktoya Partha, Buddhir Yogi, Buddhir Yogi, Buddhi Yoga, Buddhi Yogi. Now what does Buddhi mean? Buddhi means intellect. So is this the yoga of intellect that he's advocating? That would be Sankhya or Jnana Yoga. No, he's not. He just he's differentiating here between Sankhya and the kind of yoga he's advocating. Even though he uses the term Buddhi, so it must mean the yoga for the most intelligent people. <laughs> that kind of yoga. Who are they? Yajantihi Sumerasaha. Map was found in Bhagavatam. Someone asked me a question on the Sangha about the references to Mahaprabhu, different scriptures. He was having some doubts about them, whether they were fabricated or made up by the Goswamis. This is a verse from Bhagavatam. What does it say? Krishna Varnam Tusha Krishnam Sangopangasta Parshidam Yagnaye Sankirtana Prayer Yajantihi Su Medasa. Su Medasa. Medasa means buddhi. 
intelligent. Sumedasa means very, very intelligent. Who's very, very intelligent? They will engage Yagnaisan Kirtana in Sankirtan, in Kali Yuga, in the worship of Sri Krishna, Krishna Varnam, that person from whose mouth is always the syllables Krishna are always emanating. Krishna, Krishna Varnam, Tisa Krishna. He's always vibrating these two syllables, Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. And he himself is a Krishna. Means he's not black. He's not dark. So if he's not dark, he's fair. Fair means golden. Tisa Krishna. And further, he will be understood, Sangopangastra Parshadam. He has Parshadas. That person is not alone. He has Parshad. Parshada means associates. Sango, Pangastra, Sanga, he has Anga. What kind of person is this? Whose Parshad is as Anga, whose associate is his own limb, it means literally. I don't know, do we refer to other humans in that way? We may have a son, he's not my own limb. Krishna has expansions, incarnations. Ete Chamsa Kalapumsa, Krishna's too Bhagavan Swayam. Ete Chamsa Kala. He has so many, angsa, kala, anga. These are words all used to explain various manifestations of Krishna, incarnations. And Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. In Bhagavatam, so many are mentioned. Beginning with the Purusha Avatar, Mahavishnu, Kandakshai Vishnu, Sridakshai Vishnu, Kabudakshai Vishnu, and then all the avatars of them, Kapila, Narasimha, Vamana, so many. Not all, they're innumerable, Asankhya, Sutta Goswami said. They're uncountable, but I've mentioned about 20 or so, 22, 23, and Ete, Sakala, all these, including the Purushas I mentioned, the Vishnus, from which these incarnations come, Ete, all of them, Kala, Angsa, Anga, all of them, they may be described by these different words. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. They're all manifestations of Krishna. And he is God himself, the supreme fountainhead. Ramadi muti shukalani almena tishtan. Nanavatara makarod bhuvaneshu kintu. Krishna swayam samavat paramapamanyo. Govinda madi purusham tamam bhajami.